how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Morning, church. Okay, uh, Luke 7, reading from 36 to 50. Uh, I'm reading from the New King James. <clears throat> then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, who, when she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, uh, she bought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them. Tell me, which one of them would love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, sorry, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Yeah, Father, I just thank you uh, for Steve. I thank you, Lord, that your words shape us, Lord. Uh, thank you, Lord, that your water, your Holy Spirit will flow from Steve this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we will be shaped by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Really nice to be with you. That was a dinner party. Getting to the end of the dinner party and people beginning to make toasts to one another and say a few words. This man says, can I say a word? And the host says, yes, you can. And he stood up and said, plethora, and sat down. And the host said, thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> what do you call somebody who has friends for dinner? A cannibal. I thought I'd have peace and quiet for dinner last night, so I took the batteries out of the smoke alarm. <laughs> and I forgot my fork, so I tried to use a spoon. But it was pointless. The other day, 
I ate a really bad vegetarian kebab. Made me falafel. <laughs> okay, enough of those. We're looking at a dinner party, a banquet, a point where a Pharisee has invited a group of people, significant people, to come to a meal at their house. Uh, a gathering of people where they can share food together. It's an unusual event in some ways, not an everyday event that would happen. Uh, and it's at a special sort of place where, with a Pharisee hosting it, you can be sure that everything is done carefully and properly. The Pharisees were very concerned to obey the law rightly, to obey the law fully. So they would be careful in matters of food preparation and in food serving and in matters of the washings that would go with that and in preparations for themselves. Would expect the same of the guests that are there because if a guest is there not doing it in that appropriate way, then it would bring something within the context of the meal that wasn't welcome in the context of the meal. That was very, very important. It's like an operating theatre, where if you're going in to have an operation done, you don't want an operating theatre that is not clean, do you? You want to be in a clean environment, so it's like an operating theatre. It's like a wedding reception, where you've got to have everything right. The flowers on the table have got to be just right. The place settings have got to be just right. The food has got, because that's what the bride and groom are looking for. And into that context, into that meal, comes a woman. Comes a woman who reeks of impurity. A woman who stinks of sin from everybody's point of view who looks at her and steps into that situation and comes up to Jesus and begins to cry at his feet and to wipe his feet with her hair. It's as if someone's gone into an operating theatre and knocked down a couple of walls just before the operation's about to happen and covered everything in builder's dust and rubble. It's as if someone's come into the wedding reception and just moved all the flowers and stuff around and had deliberately moved the place settings just as everybody's had their drinks and about to come in and sit down. It's as if somebody has deliberately come into a setting and decided to release some dreadful communicable disease amongst us. Remember back to the days of COVID? It's as if that sort of situation has been brought into the setting. Remember those days when you would go away to something and find, in the early days of COVID, and we, or the early days of recovering from it, and you'd be gathered in a, in a party or gathered around at somebody's house. And then you get the phone call three days later. Such and such who is there has just come down with COVID. It's that kind of thing. What has it done to everybody else that is there? And does Jesus know who this person is? She's well known. That person. That person that everybody knows that brings contamination wherever they go. That person that everybody knows that everybody avoids because of who they are. That person with that reputation. That person who causes trouble. That person you just don't want to be near. Does Jesus know? Why is Jesus letting her do that? How will Jesus respond? Will he tell her to stop? That's what you'd expect a holy man to do, isn't it? Tell her to stop. 
rebuke her, or accept what she is doing. And why does Jesus do that? Well, Jesus explains how Jesus often explains by telling a parable. In the previous story, a story we missed out, we had a, a one particular story from Luke's Gospel, we've missed out a, a, a story and now we're going to this story here. But in the story we missed out, there's this discussion about the significance of John the Baptist and when they talk to him about it, Jesus says, to what will I compare the people of gener- this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we wailed and you didn't weep. He tells them a little story, he tells them a little parable. And then unpacking from that, he explains that they People look at Jesus and look at John the Baptist and see John the Baptist as one who, does, who came eating no bread and drinking no wine, verse 33. And you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. You say, look, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's important to know that parable that Jesus has just told in the passage that we've got before our passage because that sets up who he is. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's who he is. And that's the reputation that he's gathering for himself. Isn't that a wonderful reputation to have? It makes us wonder whether the church always has that reputation. But that is who we are too. But anyway, Jesus does the same here. Jesus tells a parable. And I could read the parable out. In fact, I will. But it'll be the third time we've heard the parable this morning. But never mind. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50 When they couldn't pay, he cancelled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? One and a half, two years' wages, one and a half, two months' worth of wages. Quite a difference between the two. But for both of those people, I imagine a really welcome thing to happen. Wouldn't it be great if the energy suppliers to where we live gave us a call and just said, no worries for the next year. You don't owe us anything for your gas and electricity. That's all fine. It's all taken care of. It'd be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? The phone number said, you don't have to pay any rent for the next year. You don't have to pay any mortgage for the next year. Would we feel a little bit grateful? Well, okay, after we got over the bit of, is this a scam? We would then feel probably very, very grateful for that. Significant thing about this story is that the cancelling of the debt comes because the creditor just decided to do it. It doesn't come in this story because the people went up to him and pleaded, please forgive me, please grant me. It came because the creditor wanted to do it for them. Didn't come because they gave him the eye. Didn't come because they just looked pleadingly at him. Didn't come because they threatened legal action because of something he may have done. It came because the creditor decided he wanted to do it. They didn't deserve it. It wasn't something that they had coming. It wasn't something because of who they were or something they'd done. It happened because the creditor just decided to do it, to show goodness towards them and to show mercy towards them. And that's the first thing to note about this passage this morning. Jesus deals with our situation. Jesus deals with the guilt that we may well be feeling. Jesus brings forgiveness. She's forgiven. The woman is forgiven. Verses 47, 48. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. 
and she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. doesn't judge her. He forgives her. And the whole of the guests that were there were completely shocked in verse 49. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Forgiveness in Jesus' world was possible. It's not that Jesus forgave sins is the problem. It's not that sins could be forgiven is the problem. People jolly well knew that sins could be forgiven. But for sins to be forgiven, there were certain things that you had to do that were usually involving going to the priest and going to the temple and sacrifices being made. And Jesus has said, without all of that, without going to the temple, without making certain sacrifices, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has pronounced this on his own without all of that religious paraphernalia that normally went with it. No sacrifices. No visit to the temple. No talking to priests. And I wonder for us how we feel this morning. Some of us, I suspect, are carrying within us some place of guilt something within us that we know needs to be dealt with. We know what we've done. And if Jesus were to appear here this morning, standing in this room, we couldn't look him in the eye because we know what is within and where we are. For some of us, it's not so much guilt that we feel, but it's shame that we feel. We feel shame for what we've done and how other people look at us. We know we've let people down. We know we've let God down. And we feel shameful for it. And is there anything that can be done for that guilt and that shame? And the answer is yes. Jesus, like that money lender, is in a situation where he's saying, I will forgive you. I want to forgive you. It's just a question of coming to him and meeting with him. Jesus forgives us. Jesus delivers us from shame and gives us honour, lifts up our head, says, look me in the eyes. I love you. You're forgiven. I sometimes like to think and meditate on just how amazing this forgiveness that Jesus brings is. It's complete and total Can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus forgave us? But there was still somewhere a record of what we'd done. There was the equivalent of our YouTube channel and we get up to heaven and God says, I've forgiven you so much. Maybe your family and friends would just like to watch a few videos of the things that you did that I've forgiven you for. And then Plessis loads up that video. You know, there it is, you know, for some of us. Five minutes long for some of us. You know, there was barely enough memory on the YouTube server to hold it. And we sit down there with the popcorn and we're going to watch each other's videos. And presses play. And there's nothing there. There's nothing there. It's completely gone. There's nothing. Jesus deals with it completely. But it's also important to remember 
that we're forgiven because of Jesus without all the religious paraphernalia that goes with it. We're forgiven by Jesus because of who he is, not because of how we pray. Sometimes we think we need to pray in a particular way to be forgiven, and we don't. Or use certain words, or talk to a certain person, or receive confirmation from a particular person that we are forgiven. Sometimes we think we need to do penance. We need to, to just do something for the... I, I did this particular thing, and I feel awful about it, and I must... I must make myself feel awful about it for at least a week. And that will somehow pay for it. Does that make sense with anybody? Sometimes we do things, we think we have to punish ourselves a bit because it looks like God isn't going to, oh, this needs to be punished, so I'll punish myself. And so many of us punish ourselves for what we've done because it think it needs some punishment. But Jesus has forgiven it. And okay, it's true that there are things that we do that hurt other people that we need to make amends for. Yes, that's true. There are places where we need to go and talk to somebody. There are places where we need to make right something that we have done. Of course we do. That's part of it. But we don't need to go punishing ourselves. We don't need to do a particular thing. We don't need to make God promises. I promise this. I promise that. If you forgive me for this, I'll go to revive this year. Or whatever it may be. We can't bargain with God. That's irrelevant. God forgives us. And this morning, as we, in the space after this preach, do make sure you come to the Lord about whatever it is that is still burdening in your heart. I've said it's Jesus who forgives, and sometimes it's good to pray with somebody else about that. And if that's the case, do come forward to the front and somebody will pray with you. Go and talk to your house group leader or to somebody that you've seen at the front and we will pray with you. But Jesus longs to forgive you. And he's that man in the parable that says to the others, your debt is forgiven. Second thing is that Jesus receives thanks from us. It's all very well to talk in the general about sins being forgiven and sins being uh, forgiven for people in general. What really matters is for individuals, how for each individual that story happens. What about this woman? What about the woman in this story? What's her story of forgiveness? What's it like for her? We've all got our stories. Being forgiven is not something that happens in the abstract. It's something that happens in the concrete in our lives. We've each in this room got a story to tell of something for which we know we are forgiven. And we carry that with us. Paul, the apostle, in his letters, when you read them, he cannot get over how marvellous God's grace was for him. He called himself the chief of sinners, aware that he was persecuting the church. And Jesus forgave him. And the same is true for all of us. And for many of us know those stories We have our own stories. I have my story. Leslie has her story and Shirley has her story. We've each got Denise at the back. You've got your own story, haven't you? I'm not picking on people to tell stories. Please go and say, please now, Vicky, could you tell me your worst sin that you've been forgiven? I'm not asking you to do that. But just know that we each carry that story of what God has done. And what is this woman's story? Well, in verse 37, we meet her for the first time. 
and a woman in the city who was a sinner. The, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Who is she? Who is she? Well, I can tell you three things about who she isn't, although it's very hard to tell you about who she is. I don't think she is the same woman who anointed Jesus as we read about in the other Gospels. I think this is the only place where this story is told. I think Jesus was anointed like this on more than one occasion. And we read in Matthew and in Mark and in John and about an anointing that happens towards the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. And Matthew and Mark in particular tell this story that happens in Simon the leper's house, not Simon the Pharisee's house. It happens in Bethany. This is in Nain. And when the woman pours out the alabaster bar of perfume upon Jesus' feet, the major kerfuffle that happens is the disciples going, well, this could have, or one particular disciple saying, this could have been sold and the money being given, what a waste, rather than saying, how is Jesus tolerating this? That was a view of Jesus being anointed and prepared for his death, as John makes very, very clear in his story, which may even be a third story. Here it's about thankfulness for forgiveness. So I think it's not that story. I think it's a different story. It's the only one that Luke has, but he's chosen to tell this story, not the other story. Secondly, I don't think it's Mary Magdalene. There's a story that goes around the church and has been since probably about the 4th century, I think, when somebody thought that this is probably Mary Magdalene. The assumption is that it's Mary Magdalene. It doesn't say in this passage anywhere that this is Mary Magdalene. That's an assumption that people make. So it's not necessarily Mary Magdalene. Just that people make the assumption of Mary Magdalene's past and of who this person was. The name is not given. And if it was Mary, the name would probably have been given. So it's probably not Mary. Not that that matters very much. And thirdly, I don't think she was a prostitute. Oh, well, she may have been. But I don't think it's obvious that she's a prostitute, and I don't think it's been made explicit that she's a prostitute in the text. A lot of people think she probably was a prostitute because it's got that phrase, a woman in the city, as if she's someone that walks around in the city soliciting business. But it probably just means she's notorious in the city for being a sinner of some sort. How has this woman got an alabaster bar of, of perfume? How can she afford that unless she's a prostitute and making a lot of money from that particular profession? which for many women, that was the only way that they could make money if they weren't in relationship with a man. Um, for uh, Widow of Nain's story, that was the disaster of her story, as, as we shared about uh, last week. That for a widow who is no longer dependent upon her father or her husband, she has no way of making money, apart from this one particular profession. But this alabaster bar of, uh, vial of perfume or jar of perfume could well have been an heirloom. It was for people. Something passed down amongst the family and been something that she received and not something that she'd earned and made. What about this fact that her hair is down? She's got, she's got her hair down. That must mean she's a woman of ill repute coming into the banquet to solicit trade. And that's the sort of thing that happened in banquets. In the Greco-Roman world and even in the Jewish world, it was quite well known for women to be there to provide entertainment for the men to provide a little bit of music and flute players and were often there for a little bit of sexual titillation too, often explicit sexual intercourse. So prostitutes were, but I don't think that is what's happening here. Yes, it was shameful for a married woman to have her hair down. That was something to do with the Jewish understanding of the relationships within marriage, but it wasn't shameful for a single woman to have her hair down. In fact, Having your hair down, and the hair down being in a slightly disheveled form, and it doesn't say whether her hair was immaculate or disheveled, was often a sign of contrition, a sign of humility, a sign of thankfulness 
So maybe that that's what it is. It's a woman who's coming with her hair down to show her contrition and to show her thankfulness to Jesus. And what she's doing at Jesus' feet is sometimes eroticized by some biblical commentators who talk about the weeping at his feet and the wiping of his feet. But the context is not an erotic context. The context is a supper party. So I don't think it necessarily means that she is a prostitute. She may have been, but it doesn't require it. She could have been any one of a number of other. She could have been something associated with the Roman tax system. That's quite a challenging prospect in terms of the political explosion that that brings in this context. But having said who she isn't, who is she? She's a woman who I think has met Jesus before. I don't think Jesus is saying to her, because of what you have just done to me, your sins are forgiven. You have shown love towards me. You have shown gratitude towards my presence here. And because of what you've done as an act of faith, I bring you forgiveness. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In verse 48, he says, translated slightly differently in different translations. In my translations, it says, your sins are forgiven. In the NASB, it says, your sins have been forgiven using a perfect tense here, which could be translated in either way. But it often refers to something that has happened in the past. So I think Jesus is just declaring that this is not a sinful woman. This is a woman whose sins have been dealt with. They have been dealt with, and she is not a sinful woman as she comes into this place. She has brought no contamination into this place. Her sins have been dealt with. She probably met Jesus before a few days before, a few weeks before, probably just a few days before as he's been ministering in Cain and knows her sins are forgiven. And as she's introduced, it says this about her. A woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house. This is a woman, I think, who knows that her sins have been forgiven. She's been changed and restored by Jesus and she's just wanting to express something to Jesus. She's met him. Her life has been changed. Totally changed. A disruption has been placed into her life for the good. And, and things have been brought about in order. Things have been brought about in a good place. She's knowing how to relate to God. And so she decides she's going to search for Jesus and find Jesus again. And when she knows that he's going to this banquet, she decides she's going to go there and meet him. This is the perfect opportunity. Jesus is in one place. I can go and meet with him there. And what can I take? What's the most precious thing that I have that I can bring for him? This heirloom, this jar of perfume, I can bring him that. What sacrifice can I make for him? What can I offer him? What will cost me? Not necessarily something that Jesus can make use of. Jesus didn't necessarily need this. But it's what she wanted to give him because it's what she had. It's all she had, maybe. It is the most precious thing that she had. And she wanted to bring that to him. Getting into the banquet wasn't hard. We think it is, 
because, you know, we've got closed front doors and doorbells and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't the case in the ancient world. Getting into that banquet was not a big deal at all. In fact, the banquets were quite notorious for all sorts of people coming in and out and doing all sorts of stuff. It was fine for anybody from the village to come into the banquet. They just needed to remain at the side, nowhere near the table, and line up across the, around the wall. So they could be standing by the wall and watching the banquet. They just couldn't interact with the guests. There was a real two-tier system going on here. The significant and important people at the banquet, all the plebs, gang around the edge, just going, oh, what are they eating now? That looks like a tasty piece of fish. He's going to have it. He's had it. You know, you can imagine that. And so she comes into this. Nobody stopping her. But then she crosses a boundary and approaches the table and stands behind Jesus' feet. They were reclining, leaning on their left hand often so they could use their right hand to eat, lying down on a couch on their side. Uh, they'd be sort of lying across each other like that. So Jesus' feet are behind the person to his side. Does that make sense? The person that he's next to. And she comes up behind Jesus and begins weeping. Taking, can you imagine what the risk is for her in doing this? How long do you think you could do this before you're manhandled out of the place? How long can you do this for before she knows what her reputation is? And she's willing to risk all of that to come to him and stands there bathing Jesus' feet in her tears, drying it with her hair, kissing his feet, and anointing it with oil. Jesus didn't reject her. He gave her space and time to express to him in the way that she needed to express to him her love for him and her care for him. That's who our Jesus is. As we come to him, however we come to him, he will give us that space. He will give us that time to express to him how we want to express our love for him. There's an extravagance in this. None of this was required. It wasn't required that having been forgiven, she brought something to him. She just wanted to do it because she knew that it was what she needed to do. It's not what most people did. Most people who Jesus forgave didn't come back to him the day later and bring him extravagant gifts. But she knew this is what she wanted to do because she knew how much Jesus had done for her. And she just had to do this. It's a huge gesture. It was wasteful, even. Giving the most precious thing that she had, maybe her security for the future, maybe her retirement fund, whatever it may be, bringing this to Jesus and giving it to him. But she was thankful to Jesus, and that's what Jesus saw, I think. He didn't see a sinner. He saw somebody who was thankful to him. And one of the things I think the Lord is asking us this morning is... How do we feel about the Lord this morning? How do we feel about Jesus? And maybe some of us know how we feel about him. And maybe for some of us, we're not quite sure how we feel about him. We haven't really thought that question because we know that we're supposed to love him. But how do we feel as we come to a place of worship this morning? How do we feel about the Lord when we still our heart and spend some time meditating on him and dwelling with him? What do we see God as like when we picture him? Is God someone who has eyes of love towards us? Or is God someone who is permanently a bit irritated with us because of the stuff that we do? He might still forgive us, but God's main attitude towards us is, 
irritation and annoyance and anger that we're a sinner and I'll forgive you and I have to keep forgiving you? Or is God one who's just pouring out love towards us constantly? And that picture we have of God can sometimes affect how we respond to him. Are we terrified of him? Are we thankful to him? Maybe this morning is an opportunity to just express that gratitude to Jesus. Take notice of where he is. And take notice of how we can encounter him and what do we have to bring him. And there'll be an opportunity at the end of the service for us to express that in some way of bringing something to the Lord. For many of us, we want to offer him something afresh from our lives, just from gratitude. Just because we love him, because he stirs this up within us, we want to offer him something of something that's precious to us. Not necessarily something we feel the Lord is asking for, just something we want to bring to him. Whether that's our focus or our energy or our time or our relationships or our career or what we're doing with our life, whatever it may be. For some of us, there are other emotions that Jesus stirs up within us if we're honest with ourselves. And I think it's right that we're honest with ourselves. For some of us, it might be indifference. For some of us, it might be sadness. For some of us, it might be confusion when we look at Jesus. For some of us, it may be anger when we look at Jesus. Because of something we feel that the Lord has done or not done in the past. Do you know something? Jesus is big enough to cope with all of that. Jesus is big enough to cope with whatever emotion we have towards him. And we may be holding some sort of emotion towards Jesus that is not thankfulness, and we know that it's not thankfulness. But when we come to church, we kind of pretend that it's thankfulness because it's a good place to pretend, and that's what everyone expects. And when we come to the Lord, we pretend we're predominantly thankful, but the Lord knows how we are. Maybe this morning is a good time just to say to the Lord, because of what's happened recently, I'm feeling Sad, confused, perplexed, angry, whatever it may be. And Lord, I bring that to you and I tell you that's how I'm feeling. And lay that down before him and ask him to deal with that and help us. Does that make sense? Third thing I want to say is that Jesus challenges our expectations on things. Finally, let's look at the story of Simon, Simon the Pharisee, who is as much a focus of this story as the woman is. And I think this is, when we look at the story of Simon, it explodes a lot of expectations that are around. I think one of the things that's exploded is our expectation of Simon, because I think our expectation is that Simon is a baddie because Simon is a Pharisee. I think we have in our heads, Pharisees equal baddies. Because Pharisees are those that oppose Jesus, and certainly within the gospel story, the Pharisees often oppose Jesus. But certainly within the way that Luke tells the story, not all Pharisees oppose Jesus. Does that make sense? So the Pharisees as a group seem to be against Jesus, but not all Pharisees oppose Jesus. He's very, very clear about the priests in Jerusalem and the leaders in Jerusalem who are those who put Jesus to death, but the Pharisees are not a Jerusalem-based group. They're a group based mainly up in Galilee. So the Pharisees are not a uniform group. 
Certainly this Pharisee didn't welcome Jesus, it seems, in verse 44 to 46. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water, but she's bathed my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, you haven't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. We think, ah, he's a baddie. He paid Jesus no respect. But again, I'm not sure that is necessarily true. This is a Pharisee who reached out to Jesus. You invite to your banquet people who you think are worthy of coming. That was one of the rules. One of the other rules is, if you've been invited to a banquet, you can't say no. That's how the rules went. So Simon inviting Jesus knew that, one, he regarded him as worthy of coming to his banquet, and secondly, he knew that Jesus would say yes. He knew that there was some relationship there. There wasn't opposition there. There wasn't antagonism there. And he felt at peace in doing that. So he is reaching out to Jesus in some way, inviting him into this banquet. And there's a closeness in their conversation as Jesus, he's referred to as the Pharisee, the Pharisee, the Pharisee. We find his name as Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, and refers to him by name. And he replies, teacher, and gives him an honoring name as he calls him teacher. He also seemed to think he was a prophet at the beginning because then he begins to wonder, is he really a prophet if he's doing this? So Simon had various thoughts towards Jesus. What about all this stuff about not washing his feet? He didn't wash his feet, he didn't give him a kiss, he didn't anoint his head. Well, actually, we often tell the story as if that is what he didn't do, as if he was bad. But none of that was expected. I know Walter was showing the picture of the dirty feet and blah, 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 but none of that was expected. It wasn't normal for a host to do these things. He hasn't shunned Jesus. He hasn't shamed him. He just didn't do it for any of his guests. That was extra. He might have done that if he was particularly wanting to honour a guest, but it wasn't expected. Does that make sense? So Jesus isn't saying to him, you dishonoured me. You rejected me. You didn't do the basics for me. And this woman has gone over and above. He said, this woman went over and above, and you could have gone over and above in a little way, but you didn't. Does that make sense? It's not a good thing that he didn't do those things, but it's not a bad thing either. And at the end of the story, what happens to Simon? The impression probably is that he didn't respond favorably to Jesus. And the reason I say that is because of the story that goes before, which talks about two types of people, those that respond well to Jesus and those that don't. And then we get this story of the banquet that seems to have a woman who responds well to Jesus, the implication being he didn't. But we're never told that. It's left open. And Jesus, from his point of view, spends the majority of this story talking to Simon, trying to persuade him or trying to encourage him to embrace him. Jesus doesn't reject him. Jesus invests time in him. He assumed that Jesus wasn't a prophet. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself... If this man were a prophet, he would have known who or what kind of woman this is who's touching him. The Pharisee's got 
impressions of who Jesus is. He thinks that Jesus might be a prophet, and then he starts muttering to himself, probably not out loud, in his head. You know how we have those words that are sometimes inside words and words that are outside words, words that we have in our own heads and the words that we speak out. Very occasionally we make a mistake and something that should have stuck in our head comes out of our mouth. I do that all the time. But most of the time we manage to keep those inside words in our head. And inside his head he's saying, and I thought you were a prophet and you don't even know who this woman is. And Jesus turns around to him and goes, Simon, you're wondering about this woman speaking as a prophet because he understands what's going on in Simon's head. That must have done something with Simon's brain. Some prophet you are. Oh, wait a minute, you are. So I think Simon's impression of who Jesus was were challenged and whether he responded positively to him at the end or not is left open and Luke often does this. He's not in the business of making us just go, all such people are bad. Because that's not the case. And I think for us, we can sometimes assume that groups of people are too hard to reach. Groups of people will automatically reject Jesus. There are groups of people who are just beyond being worth the effort to spend time on. Let's spend time and effort on women like this sinner, but not on Pharisees like Simon. Does that make sense? And yet Jesus spent just as much effort on Simon as the others. And it may well be that Simon turned to him. Simon also had assumptions on who this woman is. Simon made assumptions that she is a sinner because that was her reputation. And yet that is no longer who she is. She is not who she used to be. And he made those assumptions and Jesus corrected them by saying in verse 44 to him, do you see this woman? And makes Simon look at this woman and basically says to Simon, you are judging this woman as a sinner and you're a Pharisee and you're so, so different. Actually, you're not that different. You're both sinners in the eyes of God. One may have only committed a few sins, one may have committed many sins, but you're more similar to that woman than you think you are. She's expressed some gratitude. What about you? What about your response? What's your response going to be, Simon? And challenges him. And I think from that, because I can't resist talking about Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, which I see we miss next week. And I love Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. They're some of my favourite verses from Luke's Gospel, so I've got to talk about those. So we're going to talk about them. I think Simon makes an assumption that there are certain types of people who are certain types of people, and there's social categories that people are in. And I'm in the social category of Pharisee, which makes me a good guy, and she's a, a woman outcast, which means that she's not. And I think we can sometimes make assumptions of who God uses and of who people are according to their social status, according to their gender, according to their ethnicity, whatever it may be, we make assumptions about people. And we may make an assumption from reading the Gospels that it's all about men. Jesus had 12 male disciples. Yeah? No women at all who just happened to be there at the resurrection. And what I love about chapter 8 is it gives more details than any of the other Gospels 
gave. And it says this, Soon afterwards he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, listen to this, as well as some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. And Joanna and many others who provided for them out of their resources. How was Jesus able to minister? Because these women who came with him paid for it. Jesus' ministry couldn't have happened if it wasn't for these women who, as far as Luke is concerned, are numbered among the people. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says, All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. That was the crowd praying, waiting for the day of Pentecost, was the men and these women. It's just the way that most people tell the story. They don't mention the women. These women were there right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and were the ones that saw him take his last breath upon the cross when the men had run and were the ones that were there first on the day of resurrection to witness it, and were the witnesses to the resurrection. And this is going completely off-piste, and many of you will have heard me talk about this before. There's a reference in the book of Romans to two apostles, Andronicus and Juniah. Juniah is a feminine name. Many translations had it as Junias, which is a male name, because of the assumption that only men can be apostles, but it's Juniah, which is a female name. There's a female apostle called Juniah, which Paul says were in Christ before I was. Who is Juniah? Richard Borkham, who's a biblical scholar, who's very, very good at names and understanding how names worked in the ancient world, has a theory on this. Other people agree with him. I think he may well have something, actually. He talks about how people often have two names. Because if your name in your own particular language doesn't quite work in another language because people mangle it and mess it up. Anybody here from some... Uh, from a, who's the Maria, Maria, Maria. That's, that's an example of it. We mangle it. We get it wrong. And it's horrible to hear that. So I know of many people who have their name in their own language, who in English use a different name. It's a little bit like their name, but which English people can actually pronounced reasonably well, so they use that name. And that was true in the ancient world too. Paul and Saul. Saul was his name in a Hebrew context. Paul was his name in a, in a Roman context. And what sort of name may well turn into Juniah, a Latin name, to work amongst the Romans? Joanna may well be that person. In which case, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, Funding Jesus' mission, following him round from the very beginning of his Galilean ministry, a witness of his death and a witness of his resurrection, is then an apostle in Christ before Paul was and one of the founders of the church in Rome. Conjecture, conjecture, but actually believable. Sometimes we have impressions of who God uses and who God doesn't use, of who's significant for the Lord and who isn't significant for the Lord. And I think Simon was making assumptions of a woman was there. And that certainly wasn't Jesus' assumption. That women and men were both received. And women and men were both used in ministry. And women and men were both significant in the things that they did. And today, women and men are both significant. In fact, whoever we are, we're significant before the Lord. 
Let's pray together. I wondered if we can bring three things to the Lord this morning. And I'll hand over to Shirley in a moment to help us through this. But there are three things I think I want us to bring to the Lord. It may be different for each of us. But I want us to think about bringing our assumptions to the Lord. About who God reaches out to. About who God can use. Whether he can use us or not. We make assumptions all the time. Maybe it's time we brought our assumptions to Jesus because he may well want to challenge those assumptions. Secondly, I wondered if we can bring our gratitude to Jesus this morning, or however we're feeling, so that that can be expressed. And thirdly, bring our guilt to him, our guilt and our shame, that he can deal with that. And Lord, I pray for each of us this morning that we can have that encounter with you, where we meet with you, in a transforming way. In Jesus' name. Let your living word abide in me so richly as I abide in you. Let your living